Now this morning we're going to be uh, heading back towards the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got your Bibles, you might want to find where Nehemiah is. It's in the sort of first half of the Old Testament, if you're not quite sure. If you've got an app, turn on your app on your phone and uh, click in Nehemiah. You'll come across it very easily, I'm sure. But uh, we're going to be heading back to Nehemiah. If you were with us last year, uh, we uh, looked at the first three chapters of Nehemiah back in October and November last year. And um, so we, we visited those three and we looked at this theme of what does it take to turn rubble into revival? And uh, if you know the story of Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer to the king. He was in exile in the Babylonian Empire. He'd been taken away uh, from his homeland of Jerusalem, along with all his people over a number of years, and uh, found himself in, um, as the cupbearer to the king. And uh, there was a day as he was doing his cup-bearing duties when he heard news that Jerusalem was in ruins. And this stirred him up. He became very distressed with it. It turned him to tears, and it also turned him to prayer as well. And so we looked uh, back in October, November, at this early bit of the story of how Nehemiah was stirred up by God to ask the king if he could go back to his homeland and begin to rebuild the walls. And, and that, that's sort of the place we got to. And chapter 3 was about how he organized all the people in Jerusalem and how by family, by family and family, they started rebuilding these huge walls around Jerusalem. Nehemiah felt that it was a disgrace that there was no protection for his city. And so this was what stirred him up. And he became this incredible leader who mobilized his people for this incredible building task. Have you ever built a wall? Anybody built a wall? Some of you, I'm, I'm very impressed how many of you built a wall. It, it's pretty, t- it's tough, is it? Is it tough to build a wall? Yeah? Is it still standing, the wall you built? Yes. Well, well done. You obviously built it well. Well, this wall wasn't quite made up of all those nice, uh, nice sized bricks that all fit on top of each other in a particular way. This was just, you know, just big stones. And so a bit of drywalling, I guess. And if you've ever seen a drywall, I'm sure you have. They are amazing, aren't they? Aren't drywalls amazing? How they stand up, but they do. And uh, so here they were. These people who had no experience of building, including priests and perfume makers and silversmiths, they all had a go at building the wall. And so the task got started. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 4. I'm not going to read chapter 4. I'll be referring to chapter 4 as we go through this morning, if that's okay. And we'll pick up some verses. So keep your Bibles open, your apps on, and then you can hook into the verse that I want to look at at a particular time. Just to give you a bit of history back, back to that, just to give you the context, there had been three deportations of people from Jerusalem, uh, away from Jerusalem, over a period of time. In 606 BC, for those of you who love history, anybody love history? Five of you, good. Well, I'll keep going then. That's fantastic. In 606 BC, uh, the royal families and the elites had been removed from Jerusalem and taken away. And that included someone who we might know, and that was Daniel. So he was included in that first deportation. And we we read the story of Daniel in the Old Testament as well. So that, that was all part of that story. In 597 BC, so that's about, what's that, nine years later, all the skilled people and artisans were deported from Jerusalem, away from Jerusalem, and that included a character called Ezekiel. 
If you know Ezekiel, he's got a massive book in the Old Testament, and he had all those weird dreams and visions that you might like to read if you can't get to sleep one particular night or not, because you'll probably never get to sleep once you've read them. So that was 597, and then in 586 BC, another nine years later, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian military leader, he completely destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's temple, the walls were crumbling around him, and the majority of the remaining population population was taken back to Babylon as well. And that's how sort of Nehemiah, through his family, ended up back in Babylon at that particular time. Now, there was a small group of people who remained in Jerusalem, but of course it was just rubble. And they stopped noticing the rubble, and they began to think that nothing could change, that there was never going to be a restoration possible in the city they were in. They became paralyzed and powerless to it. And then there were three returns back to Jerusalem, okay? So they all went, and now they're coming back. It's a little bit later, 537 BC. So we're talking about, what are we talking about? About 50 years after the third lot went, they're starting to come back again. So this time, Zerubbabel. Can you say Zerubbabel? That was very, very good indeed. Well done. It's one of those lovely names that you uh, should always uh, talk about. Zerubbabel, he took the royal families. Remember, they'd been deported first. He took them back to Jerusalem in 537 BC. And then that reestablished the line of David back in Jerusalem. Now, the line of David is pretty important to our story, isn't it? Who came out of the line of David? Jesus came out of the line of David. So, thank goodness... Zerubbabel, who gets a mention in the line of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verse 13, in the genealogy of Jesus, you'll see Zerubbabel there. Really crucial that he went back to to Jerusalem. And so he took the royal families back in. Then Ezra, we've heard of Ezra. He's got a little book in the Old Testament as well. He took the priests and some of the Levites back to Jerusalem as well in 458 BC. That was a long time later. And he renewed the religious life of the people in Jerusalem. So things were beginning to happen. This is exhausting talking about history, isn't it? Don't you find? Do you realize how old you are when you start talking about history? Have you noticed that the older you get, the more you talk about the past? Yeah? Is that true? I find that now. I must be getting old because I keep talking about, oh, it wasn't like that in my day. And the 1970s, they were the best era of music ever, weren't they? Yeah, everybody agree? 1970s were the best era of music. Thanks, Toby. At least one. Good, 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 good. And, um, and then, sorry, Nehemiah, 444 BC. He goes back, and it's him who sets about rebuilding the walls. Okay? So 444, it's quite a long time in history times, but finally he gets back. Now, we need to realize that neither Zerubbabel, can you say that again? Yeah, or Ezra or Nehemiah, none of them were perfect. But of course, all this does, the Old Testament story points to the person who was perfect. It's setting us up for the coming of Jesus. It's setting us up for the perfect leader who would restore and renew and rebuild the kingdom. And so there are echoes, I think, that we can pick up from this story of Nehemiah that lead us to the task that Jesus came. And his task was to build the kingdom. The kingdom of God was his task. And so all of this is like a a precursor to what Jesus had come to do. 
So rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, gives us a glimpse as to, a, to what Jesus wants to happen in our lives as well. And here we are in this sort of post-Easter environment. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke, who wrote Acts, he says about Jesus that when Jesus came back to life, before he went back into heaven, the main thrust of what he taught during that time was about the kingdom of God. He wanted his followers to know that this was still the task, to build the kingdom. And so during this series, when we're looking at Nehemiah, this ancient story, I want us to feel the echoes of what it might mean for us today if we're going to rebuild the kingdom of God, if that is still our task, if that's what Jesus left his followers to do, because he was so insistent on teaching it and showing what the kingdom looked like, that that's still our task, to rebuild the kingdom. Then I think we need to understand, God, what is our role today? in rebuilding the kingdom that that Jesus came to inaugurate. So always just have have that thought as we move through the rest of Nehemiah over these next few weeks. What does this have to say to me about my role in rebuilding the kingdom? At home, in my family, in my workplace, in my community, in my social life, what does it mean? How do I get involved in being part of building the kingdom? We may see rubble now, We might see that it is broken, and in many places it is. But the challenge is, the invitation is, will we be part of bringing revival? Will we play our part in seeing that restoration of God's kingdom in your workplace, in your family, in your community? What part can we play to turn the rubble that we get fixed on, the brokenness that we see all around us, How can we bring the revival? How does God want to use us in that process? Now, Nehemiah was part of God's plan to rebuild the walls. But all along, in God's eyes, this isn't about bricks. This is about people. This is a means to restoring the people of Jerusalem whose hearts have drifted from him and he wants them to be back focused on him. See, God does see revival. God does see that it's possible for this world to find that place where once again we are, have our eyes fixed on him. And he wants us to be the people in this time to do it. So if you've got your Bibles, in Nehemiah chapter 4, you'll, you'll see the opening section is all about the opposition he faced. And I want to talk about that in a few moments. But here in verse 6, in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 6, we get to this point. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So we're at the point of half the height of the walls. They've started, but they haven't finished. And there's hard times about to come on them right now. It had got to half its height. Now, I think that's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, if you'd built a wall to half its height, I'd say, wow, what an amazing job you've done. I think that would be great. But of course, we know that the task isn't finished. See, when God's work is being done, what happens is the opposition comes in to try and stop us from finishing the task. So although it had come to half its height, what this did was just energize the opposition against them when they were rebuilding this wall. Revival is not going to happen without a fight. And God's people have got to be up for the fight. 
Actually, I was quite interested. How many of you had a... F- no, I don't know whether I should ask you how many of you had a fight. That, that, that might make me more scared of you than I am already. I don't know. But uh, it's a strange thing. You don't have to... Have you ever had a fight? I remember I had one fight in my life. I'm a wimp, honestly. I'm a wimp. But there was a boy in my class, and his name, I'm going to name him, Michael Downs, his name was, okay? Michael Downs, his name was. I hope he's listening. And he was annoying me like anything. Now, I was quite a big lad back then, bigger than I am now. I know it's hard to believe, but I was. So I had a, a distinct weight advantage over Michael Downs in that moment, and I used it. Is that a confession? Have I got to ask for... No, no. I used it to my advantage and I pinned him down to the ground, but I couldn't hit him. I so wanted to hit him, but I just couldn't do it. But anyway, I I sort of... I won the moment, didn't I, you know? But then I just gave up. Anyway, that's my story of my only fight I've had. But if we want to see revival happen, we have to know that there's going to be a fight. When opposition comes to the work of God, then God's people need to be ready for those moments to come and to fight as well. Jesus said in Matthew 11, the kingdom has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it. There's a fight going on. And whenever we start to build the kingdom, whenever we see a glimpse of God doing something new, whenever we see that that God has taken some ground in advance, there is going to be opposition to it. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. Maybe you've had opposition to following Jesus. Maybe it hasn't been overt, but maybe there's been some subtle way that people have undermined how you're living your life. Some of you, maybe it's been direct ridicule. Maybe it's been abuse even. Maybe it's just been so subtle that you feel sidelined because you've taken a stand to follow Jesus. Now, we sit here very comfortably, don't we, in in the West without much overt opposition to our faith, but spare a thought around our world today for the many Christians who are facing direct physical attack for following Jesus today and daring to stand up for him. Now, you may not have always had attacks for following Jesus, but you might have found obstacles in your way. You might have found things haven't gone the way that you thought it was because there's been a disruption going on around you. When their work was going well, the opposition was increasing because all those who were opposing them were angry about them. Verse 7, when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were angry. It upset them because they began to see maybe these people are going to finish this task. I mean, maybe in the early days they stood back and they saw these, these people who were you know, goldsmiths and priests and silvers trying to, trying to build the walls and they just laughed at them. But now things were looking as if this might happen. So what do, what do you do when opposition increases? When opposition increases, what do we do? What what can we learn from Nehemiah? Well, firstly, you pray. Firstly, you pray. Chapter 4, verse 4. This is what Nehemiah said. He prayed, hear us, our God. 
for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. When opposition grows, you pray. That's the first thing that we can learn from Nehemiah. Because any battle you face as a follower of Jesus is not just your battle. If you're seeking to live the sort of life that looks like Jesus, you will face tough times. And Jesus made it clear that we're bound to. We're absolutely bound to. Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus, he wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 5, 8 to 9. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. If you've watched any David Attenborough programs, apart from probably the latest one about the British Isles, you will know that lions wait to attack the most vulnerable animal in that pack or that herd that they're following. They wait until one of them is just isolated enough when an attack becomes possible. Peter says, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist. Stay close to the pack. Pray. Prayer reminds us that we're never alone. Whatever is happening to us, we are never on our own. Prayer also helps us remember that what God thinks about us is actually so much more important than what other people think about us or say about us at that particular time. And prayer renews our confidence, renews our confidence that God is bigger than anything that we could ever face. Now, Nehemiah could have stopped halfway See, I think he probably still would have got a pretty good press in the Bible if he'd stopped halfway. I think it would have been okay for him. It was quite impressive, all that he had done to get the troops together to make it possible. But he could have stopped because the criticism just got too much for him in that moment. But this is what he knew. He knew, don't let praise get to your head and don't get, let criticism get to your heart. If you're doing anything, don't let praise get to your head and don't let criticism sink into your heart. But keep on praying and keep on trusting the God who has called you to the task. Nehemiah's call was to go back and build the walls. His call wasn't to go back and build half the wall or half the height of the wall and be proud of it. His task, his call was to build the wall. I wonder what God is calling you to. What is the task he's given you? It's the call that still echoes through the ages to all of us. At the halfway point of that call, the opposition may well intensify. We read that there were attacks on the north, the south, the east, and now the west was being closed off. There was no escape for them, even if they wanted to give up. They were surrounded by the enemy. But Nehemiah doesn't talk to the critics. He doesn't engage in a debate with them whether they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't try and put them down. He leaves the critics to one side and he keeps talking to God. And if you find yourself surrounded, look upwards. Look to the God who is still there on your side.
He didn't get stuck in what he couldn't do. He was reminded of what he could do. And the one thing he could do was pray and rely on God's presence and his power to resolve the difficult situation he was in. Is there a situation that you're halfway through that you know God longs for you to finish, but you've stopped? Tempted to give up? Tempted to be diverted to another task that may be good, but is not the best? Pray. It's a great place to ensure that we get back on track. If you're facing opposition or criticism, if it's creating doubts in who you are and who God is, please keep on praying. Look upwards to the God who called you in the first place. And the second thing that happens in this is that Nehemiah not only prays, he also works as well. The two have seemed to have gone hand in hand. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, The people worked with all their heart. He didn't stop and just keep praying and praying and help, hope God would resolve it. He carried on with the task and mobilized the people to keep on going. Paul writes to the Colossians, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. And so very much with a fresh resolve, they get on with this task of continuing to build the walls. It was tough. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. We begin to see the problem bigger than the solution. Verse 11, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So what did Nehemiah do? He set the people to work again. The negative attitude of other people, he didn't want that to infect the people who were working. And so, verse 11 Sorry, verse 13. Therefore, I, Nehemiah, stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. See, there's a place where we get back, we roll up our sleeves, and we get on with the task that God has called us to. Prayer is part of it. But as uh, either St. Augustine or Ignatius says, pray as if everything depends on God. Work as if everything depends on you. It goes hand in hand. The task is God and you in what he's called you to do. Nehemiah posted a guard. Someone was there right next to the workers, cheering them on, saying, come on, you can do this, giving them protection, accountability. Together, they carried on with this task. Some of the people were in the exposed places, the lowest part, those vulnerable to attack. 
I wonder if you've got an exposed place in your life, a vulnerable place where you're prone to attack. I wonder if the enemy picks on that particular thing, that character, that habit, that addiction, that attitude that keeps on coming back and back and back. I wonder if that's the place of exposure and you need a guard to be placed next to it, someone who will hold you accountable for it. It's good to have someone who can stand guard with you. A friend who you can say, can you pray with me, for me about this? This is what's happening. I need a guard. I need somebody who will just join me in the challenges that I'm facing. It's good to have someone to guard because then you can get on with the work that he's called you to. Some of you will know that tomorrow morning you're going to be exposed again to a difficult place, a difficult situation, a difficult workplace, a difficult conversation, a difficult relationship. Some of you know that you'll feel exposed, alone, isolated. That's when you need someone who is going to stand with you. Ask someone, could you pray for me tomorrow morning? Could you pray for me on Tuesday? I've got this meeting, I've got this conversation I've got to have. Could you pray for me in that? Find someone who will stand guard over you for that particular situation. We're called to be exposed, really, aren't we? We're called to be an exposed people. We're called to be a light on a lampstand, not hidden under a bowl. We're called to be salt shaken into the world, not left in the salt cellar. We're called to be exposed, so let's prepare ourselves to be in those places. And we've got someone standing guard over us, praying for us at that particular time. It's not an easy place to be, but perhaps it shouldn't be if we're going to be the people who build the kingdom of God. Verse 14, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Tomorrow, will you remember the Lord who is great and awesome? As you go into the workplace, will you remember the Lord who is great and awesome? And say, God, would you use me today to be light, to be salt in this place? This is the confidence we have, a fresh vision that we're never alone. I wonder, do you know that, I think it's a children's song really, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. Do you know that? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. That's not bad, not bad. The mountains are his, the rivers are his. I sang the stars in the universe too. Plink, plonk. Don't forget the plink, plonk. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. Try singing that as you go into work tomorrow morning, will you? As you go to see your family tomorrow morning. As whatever task it is that you're going to be doing tomorrow morning, sing it as you go. You'll get a few weird looks, I'm sure, but it'll be okay. And if you're driving to work tomorrow morning, sing it in the car before you get in the car park, will you? Don't do the actions. That's the only thing I would say as you're driving. Don't do the actions, okay? But sing it. Remember, Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Put a spring in your step tomorrow morning, whatever it is you're going to face. You know, Psalm 118, when hard-pressed... I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. Wow. 
a bigger place than the, the narrowness of what I'm facing. The Lord is with me, the psalmist goes on. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And Nehemiah says, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And so what did they do after hearing that? Verse 15, they returned to the wall, each to their own work. Get back to the work God's called you to. Don't be derailed. Don't be disrupted by it. This is what he's called you to. Let's get back and finish the wall. Let's get back to fulfill the task that he's called us to. And what happens next? Verse 20, my favorite verse in this chapter. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. We can rely on God to be there with us. I don't know how many of you were listening when you were at school. No? You're not bad at listening today. You will know Newton's third law, won't you? Yeah? Well, you'll know his first and second, won't you? Do you know his third law? I had to look it up. I went to a comprehensive school. We never learned things like this. It states that for every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah? Do you know it now, don't you? You just didn't know it was Newton, did you? And you didn't know it was his third law. Well, it is. For every action or force in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So when one force comes up against another force, there's an equal and opposite reaction. But what happens when the lawmaker himself gets involved? When the one who has put that law into place, what happens when he disrupts that law? Well, then something amazing happens. Our God will fight for us. When Sambalat and Tobiah and all their cronies started pushing against Nehemiah and the people who were building the wall, things didn't come to a standstill because our God will fight for us. And the lawmaker pushed the enemies away and the people completed the task. Our God will fight for us. There can only be one winner when you invite God to become part of this battle. See, what we know is that the greater the opposition against us, the greater the opportunity for God to fight for us. The greater the opposition that fights against you, the greater the op opportunity for God to fight for you. Our God will fight for us. And it's in that confidence that we can stay standing even when things are getting tough. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. There's the confidence we can have in a God who will fight for us as we continue to be engaged in building the kingdom that he's called us to. 
So will you be part of it? Will you be resilient, confident in the God who's called you, that he will be with you and enable you to finish the task? For about 90 years, all anyone could see in Jerusalem was rubble. But Nehemiah, he saw revival. And then there was opposition. But Nehemiah saw opportunity for something amazing to come out of it that would reflect the God who has fought for them. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Don't stop halfway, will you? Don't stop halfway. Let's trust a God who calls us to complete the task and continue to trust him with our lives. That's how the kingdom comes, one life at a time. That's how the kingdom gets built and how God begins to become king of his kingdom once again. As we reflect back on some of that, we're just going to listen to a song that's going to be played on the screen for us. talks about the fact that he will hold you strong. And as you listen today, just give yourself back to him. He's called you to a task. He'll remind you of it, but remember he's with you. And continue until you're done to complete what it is that he started. Father, thank you. Thank you for the assurance that we can trust you. Pray for anyone here today who just needs to put their hand in your hand today. To be reassured that you are with them and for them and that nothing separates them from your love. And I pray, God, that this week, this coming week, as we go into those places and those uh, conversations that uh, we're going to have, that you will go ahead of us, be at our sides and behind us, and we can have confidence in the truth of what it is you've called us to. Father, for those of us who perhaps have stopped doing what you've called us to, I pray that you will remind us of your call, that we will pick up again what it is that uh, we've put down, and we'll trust you with your help, to complete the task. Father, thank you. Call us on, I pray. Invite us to be part of building your kingdom, one life at a time, one conversation at a time, one prayer at a time. May we know that we are never alone with you and with one another until you call us, I pray. In the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless. Thank you.